Welcome to this week's episode of Social Justice Matters, the podcast from Social Justice Ireland. My name is Suzanne Rogers and I'm Research and Policy Analyst with Social Justice Ireland. As regular listeners will know, we release three different types of podcasts. There's our 10-minute lesson series, there's our seminar series, and then we have our interview series. This week, it's an interview. The National Economic Dialogue for 2022 took place earlier this week in Dublin Castle. Social Justice Ireland was there, so I have the rare treat of a conversation with my colleagues, Sean Healy, CEO, Michelle Murphy, Research and Policy Analyst, and Colette Bennett, Economic and Social Analyst, tell me all about their experiences on the day. We hope you enjoy. Everybody was at the National Economic Dialogue 2022 this week. Sean, you might take us through the history, the evolution of the National Economic Dialogue, please. Absolutely. It started in 2015. I think that was basically, there had been a few years from the termination, if you like, of the older form that had started of, of social dialogue that had started in 1989. In the beginning, that was employers, trade unions and farmers sitting down with government, drawing up national agreements. In 1997, well, late 96, the community and voluntary pillar was created by government and uh, added to the process were there for a number of agreements while a number of agreements were being negotiated and agreed. And then finally, the fifth pillar, the environmental pillar, was created in about 2005-06, but it actually never took part in the negotiation of a national agreement. Sorry, it was probably 2007 it, it was set up. And before they got to be part of negotiating a national agreement. The whole process fell apart after the crash, the bank crash in 2008, and the government kind of was in a very bad state. Finances were in a very bad state. Ireland went into all sorts of problems, including a bailout. And as a result, there was no social dialogue of any substance. Government, I think, felt that something needed to be done about this. So they created this national economic dialogue in 2015. Uh, They invited most of the organizations that were previously involved in the five in the five pillars and they invited a number of other organizations and groups as well mostly either academics or think tanks or uh, politicians they were the kind of three additional groupings if you like that were invited now it's focused very much on the upcoming budget each year it's supposed to be not uh, looking at the details of a budget, but the general outline and, and approach and having a discussion, government putting some things on the table for discussion, others putting everybody else having the right to uh, respond, but also to name their own con- uh, concerns or interests or whatever that they feel should be there. The very first one was in 2015. It has been running since. It, in the beginning, it was, in fact, up to the COVID time, it used to be a two-day affair, but then over COVID, it became a one-day affair on Zoom. And this year, the first time we got back together in person, they st- they stuck to the one-day format. Now, the one good thing about it, uh, well, one of the good things about it, is that it over half the cabinet shows up for a day or a day and a half, whatever length it takes, uh, and does engage in a variety of different ways. The format it follows is a plenary, opening plenary, in which the Taoiseach and 
the Minister for Finance, Minister for Social, or for Public Expenditure and Reform. They make statements, if you like. Now, in the past, when we were in person, there would then be an opening plenary in which people were given a number of minutes if they were sitting around the table to actually make whatever points they wanted to make. That session was eliminated this time, and we went directly into breakout groups. Each of the breakout groups, there were seven this time, they're all chaired by a, a different minister, all seven of them. They run simultaneously. People can opt to join one or another of these. And then they each take a topic that deals with or that has some connection to the overall theme. And then there's usually somebody in there who has been chosen in advance, brought in specifically to be a rapporteur and to report back to the wider group. Interestingly enough, there used to be a time when in the past when people would have overnight to prepare the feedback yesterday. They didn't have that at all. They just had lunchtime and they had to be on the ball immediately afterwards to do a feedback. When the feedback is done yesterday, now people, and the same would have happened before, people would have got, uh, participants would have got an opportunity to articulate their some comments, observations, or to pose questions for the ministers that were there. Of course, the Tanishta came along as well yesterday. He made a, a statement in the plenary session in the afternoon, and the whole session was concluded by Minister Rushin Smith, who basically filled in for Minister Eamon Ryan, who wasn't uh, at the last minute, had to check out for one reason or another. We got a, a few extra plenary uh, presentations from government ministers yesterday. I'm sure we're the better for it. I was looking up, but the website says that the National Economic Dialogue is the principal institutional forum for public consultation and discussion on the budget, and that it's an annual stakeholder event hosted by the Department of Finance and the Department of Public and Expenditure and Reform. It's not actually open to the general public, though. It is a stakeholder invite only event, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. It's very much a stakeholder only event, and it's an invitation only event. Since the very beginning, Social Justice Ireland has been invited to be part of it always, and we've always had uh, two seats there. Yesterday, we were invited to bring three people. So Michelle Murphy and Colette Bennett were with me at that, and they're both on this podcast, so I'm sure they'll have interesting views. Michelle has been there many times before. Uh, I think yesterday was Colette's first time at it. The bottom line in it is that basically the people that are seen as stakeholders are there. So there's employers and employer organizations and business organizations like the sort of tourist organization, hospitality organizations, the chambers of commerce, the construction industry, IBEC, those kinds of people. There's trade unions. Basically, it's it's Irish Congress of Trade Unions, and they had a substantial representation there yesterday. The farming organizations, the IFA, the ICMSA, the, the various farming organizations, MACRA, the, that people would be aware of. The community and voluntary uh, pillar, our own pillar, had ourselves and uh, organizations like, like the Vincent de Paul, various organizations representing uh, older people, rural, the wheel were there. I'm just going around the table here trying to recall where, where people actually were. I'm sorry, there was a fifth one. Is the fifth pillar is the environmental pillar, and they were represented. They have a structure that represents the environmental organizations, and they had seats at the table as well. 
As well as that, there were organizations like Nevin Economic Research Institute and the ESRI and groups like that that people would be aware of. Some academics cited as well. There were a number of politicians from the Iraq Oversight Committee. They were there as well. So I probably missed out a lot of people there, but at least it gives you a flavor for who was there. It's a good mix. I know we had said that 2015 was the first one, and the theme for 2015 was preparation for risks. Economic shocks, both positive and negative, are inevitable, which I think is very prescient and very familiar. So the theme for this year was building economic resilience to deal with international challenges. And as you said, there were seven breakout sessions and the three of you would have been at three separate breakout sessions. That's the way it worked, wasn't it? Yeah. I might start with Michelle. Which session were you at, please? I was at breakout session four, which the title of which was From Carbon Budgets to Effective Climate Policy Implementation. And that session, it was chaired by Minister Oshin Smith, who was standing in for Minister Eamon Ryan, who was unable to attend. You're given a series of papers in advance for each breakout session, and it it details, I suppose, some background information on on the issue. And then there's uh, issues or questions for discussion which are are highlighted there. So there was five sort of questions for discussion, the first one being barriers hindering climate action in Ireland and how they might be removed looking at how the government could leverage private finance into climate and environmental measures, looking at what learnings from the pandemic in terms of communication, public buy-in and building trust. Can the government learn and, you know, can some of this be translated into the, the difficult choices that must be made over the coming decade in terms of climate action, carbon budgets? Then a, an issue around, I suppose, the, the very topical issue, the war in Ukraine, increased energy costs and how can are there policies that we can introduce to speed up the adoption of renewable electricity generation and then the final issue then are innovative ways of I suppose spreading the the cost of the high the high upfront cost of investments and low carbon initiatives is there a way to spread them out over time in a manner that that is equitable so this was five very big and wide-ranging questions there and so th- there's a two hour session then to sort of discuss those issues. And I suppose, depending on how many people are, are in each breakout session, that will determine how discursive it is or, you know, if it's just going through each question to try and get get people's views. And then later on in the day, the rapporteur then reports back. I suppose what was interesting in terms of our session is people made the point that there wasn't so much of a focus on, well, what policies can be implemented. We do all know what the barriers are. And I suppose one of the challenges we've always had in this country in terms of climate action is that we actually can write good policy. Our challenge is implementing it. So that was pointed out that perhaps it might have been better to discuss implementation. You know, are there are there barriers? Is it sectoral barriers, for example? Another issue that was pointed out was that we do need to meet the upper end of the carbon budget targets, the very upper end for every sector, which means not the lower, you know, there's different percentages and scenarios in the Climate Change Advisory Council carbon budgets. But given the trajectory we, on, we are on, we need to be reaching the sort of 30 percent high end target for each of those. And that is going to be really, really challenging, given that there aren't actually 
as yet impact assessments prepared for the different sectors and what that might mean and how that might be mapped out. So I suppose the sectors themselves cannot see what the impact will be. And if you don't know what the impact will be, then I suppose it's quite hard to um, bring your members along with you. We pointed out the fact that the whole issue of income was missing from the discussion. How do you support people's incomes during the transition? For example, how do you support sectors and businesses and farmers, for example, to diversify their income? How do you set up our, our national grid to support that? I'm, I'm thinking about sort of solar energy here. Then what about people who are going to lose their jobs in the short to medium term or whose jobs will become redundant? How are you going to support their incomes and also retrain them at the same time? And that that was missing from the discussion, which I think, you know, in broader terms, it needs to be in there. And I suppose we and another a number of other organisations made the point that the climate dialogue, which is committed to within the um, climate action plan, it hasn't started yet, but it should go beyond just climate. You know, it should also encompass the issues that some of the other breakout sessions in the in the National Economic Dialogue for 2022 was looking at things like housing, for example, the future labour markets, the whole agri-food sector, for example, a well-being framework, and that actually you need a, a dialogue looking at climate, economic and social issues. And I suppose there's a push on when this is actually going to be put in place and when we're actually going to start with making some progress on this issue. Interesting, Rue. Colette, what session were you in? I think I can probably guess. Confronting <laughs> the challenges of viability and affordability in an era of rising costs and prices, housing, I presume? Yes. So, yeah, you know, unsurprisingly, I was at the, the housing one. And what I found really interesting, really, really interesting was, again, as Michelle said, we were given a package of information. So there was a, a kind of a full delicate pack. You had the program and then you had some kind of background reading for each of the, the various different breakout sessions. So session five kind of centered around four questions. And I'm going to give you a tiny little quiz because when I read out the four questions, I'm going to ask you, Suzanne Rogers, what you think is missing. So the first one was, how can the cost of residential construction, particularly that of brownfield high density developments favoured by the National Planning Framework, be contained or lowered? The second one was, how can the capacity of the construction sector be increased to deliver 33,000 homes on average per annum while achieving wider policy aims such as retrofitting? The third one was how do we maximise the use of our existing housing stock, especially in towns and cities? And the fourth one was how much of a threat is the current high level of inflation and building materials to the supply targets set out in housing for all? And what can be done to address the challenge of such inflation? Anything missing there? Social housing? It got it in one. Uh, so, yeah, I was really surprised. I mean, and these are really good questions. They're really important questions. Absolutely. You know, things... Things around cost is obviously really important when we talk about uh, such a, a valuable thing, such as housing, something that's so valuable to all of our lives and so necessary, but a glaring omission for ourselves and for others, particularly given that there were, you know, social housing groups in the in the room, uh, was the fact that it did not talk about social housing. It didn't mention homelessness. So, you know, it was a it was a case of within the room trying to kind of shoehorn things around the, the capacity to build social housing and the necessity of it into these kind of debates. There was a great kind of debate in the room. There were 
So there were ourselves, obviously, there were, as I said, kind of social housing sector, the AHB, the approved housing body sector. There were people from the homelessness sector. There were the trade unions. We had business. We had chambers. We had the valuers uh, organizations. We had chartered surveyors. We had the construction industry. And then obviously uh, we had the department. So it was chaired by the Minister for Housing. So Dara uh, O'Brien chaired it. And then the rapporteur was Michelle Norris. So as many people would know, Michelle is an expert. She's a, a professor in University College Dublin. She specializes in housing. So it was, it, you know, it, there was a, a fair few heads in the room discussing these issues. And when it came to things like, you know, cost of residential construction, there was a lot of discussion around density. So for example, there's been a lot of debate around whether you should build up and are we really going to constantly have this debate within, particularly within town centres and cities, a very, very high rise. Uh, so there was some discussion around, well, actually to have density, you don't need high rise, you can have low rise and still have high density. Some of the things that might need to be watched for, you know, from our own perspective would be some of the commentary around, well, if we perhaps change the regulations, we might be able to do more in terms of housing because building an apartment is more expensive than building a house. So if you can allow the regulations to shift a little so that it's more viable uh, to build houses rather than apartments, then, you know, you'd get the density that you're looking for. But we've seen with build to rent, for example, what shifting the regulations and, and modifying things can actually do. And essentially it ends up with very well, not very, but fair, certainly far lower standard housing. And certainly in the context of a pandemic, we saw, for example, built around didn't have the cross ventilation that we need for an airborne pandemic, didn't have balcony space, didn't have enough space to allow people to just live and to work from home and, you know, to have their families to grow. So we'd be mindful of things like that, certainly in, the, in that context around the new plans. Then we moved on to how the capacity of the construction sector could be increased. And there was a lot of discussion around apprenticeships, and that was really, really welcome. There seemed to be a consensus in the room around what needed to be done in terms of making apprenticeships more attractive. Now, some in the industry, you know, there was some discussion around, well, maybe we should just shorten them, shorten apprenticeships from four years to two years, maybe shorten things like safe pass training courses uh, that are a day long, maybe bring them online, make them a couple of hours long. And there was some significant level of pushback on that because really what you're doing there is you're trying, you know, if you shorten it too much, you reduce the levels of safety. So that obviously needs to be safeguarded. And then you also, you know, you want apprentices to feel that they're getting a value out of the learning. So some good stuff, though, that came out of that was, again, making it more attractive. There are some things happening uh, in the higher education side. And we would have pushed a little bit for kind of spreading that good news to secondary level education. So as kids are starting to go through transition year, fifth and sixth year, to rather than constantly talk about points and colleges and like I would be aware of of schools that would have colleges come in and do the talk and the recruitment drive and all of that that apprenticeships should have that same access to schools it you know college isn't going to suit every child and apprenticeships are a great way forward as well and if they are blended so if they're they're given this kind of blended learning where you've got the on-site kind of traditional bricky type apprenticeship but you've also got kind of a, a learning element to it within one of either the technical universities at a regional basis or one of the colleges, then you've got that capacity to 
build in sustainability, to build in new technologies, new way of doing things. So there was a lot of discussion about that. But, you know, some pessimism around the fact that we we are unlikely to reach the 33,000 per annum target of housing for all because of the fact that they're just there isn't sufficient labor in the market to actually do it. Again, that kind of all was wrapped up you know, in terms of, of the cost of living and in terms of if you bring in people to build houses, where do you actually accommodate them? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so there was a lot in that. Now, I mean, that's all based on a premise that 33,000 houses per annum is sufficient. Uh, and as we've been advocating for quite some time, it definitely isn't. So it leaves behind a pent up demand of about 90 and a half thousand units. And it's not really taking into account real household formation going forward. But even within that context, if we take the good out of what came about it, um, I think there will be some move on apprenticeships. There will be some changes in how they are viewed and valued. And that can really only be a good thing. And there was also a push in terms of kind of a more gendered nature and also to have those retrofitting, those green climate challenge things built into apprenticeships as well. So that people have a much more sustainable, dynamic type of experience and a learning experience and something that will, will stand to them as things change. We moved on then to how we maximise the use of our existing housing stock. And yep, again, we had a lot of discussion around vacancy. So the last census, which is well out of date, was 2016. That said there was 183,000 vacant units, not including uh, holiday homes. The geo puts it at about 95, 90,000, 95,000 vacants. Either way, there are too many vacants. So there was a discussion around the introduction of a vacant tax. Again, that was quite a robust discussion, actually. There were some people very much in favour of it, some people very much against it, and much more in favour of a, a carrot approach. So a different type of tax system that rather than pushing people to sell a vacant property and incur capital acquisitions tax, at 33%, that maybe, you know, that could be deferred or maybe that could be, you know, set aside altogether. So there's there's a whole robust discussion around that um, and also around what can be done at a, a kind of a local and a regional level as well. Local authorities, for example, are really finding it very difficult. Um, now, that said, uh, there aren't very many vacancy officers. I think there's, there's between three and five vacancy officers out of the 31. So there should be one in every local authority um, across the state. So maybe if they had a vacancy officer with the necessary skills and qualifications, they wouldn't find it as difficult to deal with the vacancy issue within their, their county boundary. The value of having all of these wide variety of stakeholders in the room to discuss a topic, you can see the value of it straight away, can't you? Absolutely. And I mean, as, as Sean said, I was, you know, long time listener, first time caller at the <laughs> National Economic Dialogue this year. And that was exactly what struck me. It's just it's so valuable because I think we can have debates on social media and mm. I'll have my position and you'll have your position. And we're both absolutely convinced we're right. And that's it. So the value of having these kinds of discussions on an ongoing basis is absolutely critical because I felt I learned loads. I hoped others in the room felt they might have learned something as well. Even if we don't go a million miles from where we started, that there's a shift in the discussion. So, for example, there was a discussion around compulsory purchase orders to make better use of vacancy. And you know, we had advocated that I had brought in the, the idea of compulsory sale orders like they're doing in, in Scotland. And there was a lot of kind of nodding and agreement and wondering about, you know, how might they be used? Because they're much more cost efficient for local authorities 
than having to have the funds up front to actually buy the property under a CPO. Uh, so there's some things that could be done, but I wedged, shoehorned in the whole idea about if you're talking about viability and affordability and you're talking about maximizing the use of existing buildings, let's have a conversation about the number of households that are being subsidized who that are actually social housing households but that are living in the private rented sector. Let's make a better use out of the private rented sector by building more social housing and moving those households to be more appropriately accommodated, therefore freeing up units there. Uh, so again, in, in terms of HAP and the, the data that is available from the Central Statistics Office, you've got just over 60,000 units there. The SRI published a report saying that 95,500 units are subsidized or households are subsidized in the rented sector. Now that's subsidized by HAP, by the rental accommodation scheme, but also by rent supplement. So they would be included on the social housing waiting lists. So again, there was there's a fair bit of agreement. And even in, in terms of the, the kind of business sectors came in on that, like they really want to see more social housing being built in their area because it's absolutely critical to try and free up other housing units. Um, and then we had the whole idea of the, the threat of current levels of inflation and what that's going to do. So there was a very interesting discussion around you know, what that's going to mean for, for house prices and really what can be absorbed. But all of that seems like, I mean, very positive in terms of the debate, but somewhat a little bit miserable. But that said, there was some really, really, really good debate in the plenary session. So earlier on, the Taoiseach opened the whole event. And he talked about the fact that there was a housing crisis, that it was the single biggest issue and that it needed to be dealt with. So I'll take that as a, as a win. We talked about you know, the fact that there needed to be much more investment and it needed to be sustainable, that the forthcoming budget will be a cost of living budget. And you know, we've seen from the data again from the Central Statistics Office on the inflation metrics that rent payments are actually driving inflation on the housing side of things. It's great to have that discussion around that. We also heard from Pascal Donoghue, now he was a little more muted or muted in his, his uh, discussion around what can be done. And, you know, it's all about fiscal restraint. Uh, but even within that, he talked about having to invest and having national investment plan for the economy and making sure that we were in a good space. Similarly, Michael McGrath, uh, the Minister for Public Expenditure and Reform, he also brought that discussion to the fore as well, because he mentioned Ukraine, for example, and the fact that we've seen 36,000 people coming into the country. So again, they need to be accommodated. So the fact that accommodation and housing is to everybody's mind means that surely in budget 2023, there will be a significant you know, package for housing. We live in hope. Sean, what group got the pleasure of your company and knowledge and expertise? Which one were you in? I was in, in the first one with Minister for Finance, Pascal Donoghue. Uh, it was looking at building a robust economy to withstand global shocks. And I think anybody who knows us knows what our first comment on that is going to be, that it is a silo and that there's a lot of stuff missing out of there. If you're just going to look at the economy, you need to look far beyond it. Because to have a good economy, you need to have good services and good infrastructure. And if you're going to have those, you need just taxation. And to deliver all of that, you need good governance and you need sustainability. And the sustainability is like environmental and economic sustainability, but also social sustainability. You've got to be building a society that people want to live in. 
So all of that came into play, actually. And those points were made by myself and others in the context of the discussion. Interestingly enough, the minister followed a different approach to the other others that we've heard from there. And uh, he basically articulated the four questions and then allowed people to sort of take it where they went, where they never wanted to go. And the result was quite interesting because there was two or three things that came to the fore. One was the sheer issue of uncertainty and that we are facing huge issues around the COVID-19 follow-up and consequences of what's happened already, what might happen again in the future, the instability about Russia and the Ukraine, and also the ongoing cost of living crisis, which is huge. But also then other things came in, issues around demographics, for example. The fact that we have an aging population, an issue that we've done a lot of work on and basically trying to get the society to face the issue that as our population ages, this is something to be celebrated, but we have to prepare for it properly. The other thing, uh, the second item that kind of got a lot of coverage within the discussion was the whole idea of having a medium-term perspective. Some people were indicating they hated budgets. Uh, I'm not in that. Uh, I'm not in that category myself. And the minister was indicating that he isn't either. But the, the point being made was, you need multi-annual approaches. You need a planning approach and that is dynamic in the sense that it, it isn't an issue of setting down a plan and then being locked into that plan no matter what happens. It's, it's like being able to manage a hurling or a football team. And uh, if they're not doing so well through the game, you, you change, you make some changes, you adjust what you're trying to do. You might even change the personnel a bit, whatever that kind of thing. I think the idea of a medium-term perspective had a lot of support from the participants in the in, in the discussion. Uh, as I said, maybe not as much from the minister, but I think at the end of the day, the minister would acknowledge uh, the import and does acknowledge the importance of having a longer-term perspective. How to organize it, I think, is, is an issue that he finds maybe challenging because of the political reality that we're in all the time which is that governments come and go and that there's always threats of elections to be dealt with and so on. There was a, a number of key issues that we were kind of high, trying to highlight as well in that discussion. And one was about the people on the margins, basically, the people who have lost out dramatically, people who are hardest hit by the current cost of living crisis. And there's endless studies, including one notably from the central bank, which now acknowledge that the people, the, bottom, the, the poorest 20% are hardest hit in a situation where the, there's a cost of living rising. So now, we were kind of dealing with proposing that the government deal with the uncertainty by having a dual strategy, one being having a, a clarity about what they would do if things worked out okay, and then having a, a fallback position which they would articulate and plan for if things really went off the rails, if we got bad inflation, even drifted into recession and those kinds of dangers that are out there, a lot of it beyond our own control and fairness. We were basically saying, no matter what approach government takes, if it takes either or both of those for the moment, that the priority must be protecting the poorest, protecting the 20%. Basically, we were, we were making the point, of course, that poverty is never just about 
income, but poverty is always about income. You're not going to solve poverty issue without dealing with the income issue. So we were outlining a number of proposals there about the income issue and what needed to be done. We were also showing what needed to be done in terms of the infrastructure and social services that needed to be put in place, whether that's in social housing, as Colette's been talking about, or whether it's dealing with the the impacts of the climate policy that uh, Michelle was talking about, or other issues that were debated in like the uh, that we are very involved with that but we weren't in the discussion yesterday in the groups on well-being for example and so on uh, but the, the bottom line in it in it all is that budgets are are instruments that government has at its disposal to deal with the situation that's emerging and in this context they have to give priority to protecting the poorest 20 percent and ensuring that the services the infrastructure and the income issues are all addressed comprehensively no matter how uh, difficult uh, the situation they find themselves in, uh, we all find ourselves in uh, later this year when it comes to the budget. Is it real dialogue? Are there genuine benefits for the groups that go and get to speak and get to put across their point of view? And are there benefits for government? So I suppose there's two different questions there. I have the longer experience, but I, I suspect Colette would have the sharper kind of response <laughs> possibly because it's newer experience. Uh, it, it, it is a very mixed bag. I would say, first of all, we get an opportunity to articulate our position directly to more than half the cabinet. Very few places in the world provide that kind of opportunity. Okay, So I think that's a very positive thing, needs to be acknowledged. I think we would benefit from more social dialogue. We've been arguing this case quite strongly. Um, If government doesn't want to kind of go back to the traditional pillars and so on, it could certainly have a series of these through the year, preferably dealing with one issue at a time, indicating that we were going to go on to other issues, not that we're going to do one discussion. And you could have a a national economic dialogue on housing. You could have one on climate. Uh, You could have one on education. You could have one on public transport. You could have one on participation. You know, that you could have one on sustainability. You could have one on national well-being. Like, there are so many things you could do. We in Social Justice Ireland have been advocating this kind of approach for a long, long time. The problem with the National Economic Dialogue at its core, it's a one-off annual event. So in that sense, that's a limitation that you set beside the other. Then some the other parts of it, like there are ministers who will sit there the whole time, but I, I was a bit perplexed listening to the Tanishta myself because uh, he came in, he made a speech. The key, the key issue in the speech was that we're doing better than we were in that, doing in 1922. That's a real surprise. I was glad to, that he was confirming it. But the more serious issue was he talked about the importance of listening and he left as soon as he had finished speaking. Now, in fairness to him, he actually did stay for his own breakout group, uh, and he went through that. But then in the afternoon, he, he opened the afternoon session with a presentation. Now, in fairness, he talked about he talked about a range of issues from 1922 right up to the present, summarized the, the situation as he saw it. But then he didn't kind of wait for the plenary or hear other responses and comments other than the people who had gone to his particular breakout session, which was about labor market conditions and adapting to the, those cha- the changes in that. The other piece that I think is important in it is that the participants get to hear each other. Because we don't have arenas like 
we used to have in the past, where employers could hear from, from the community and voluntary sector or from farmers or from the environmental sector. I'm sure they hear regularly from unions, but they don't hear from the rest of us anymore as we used to be able to articulate different views. But not just that, have to defend our arguments and our positions and also put a sort of interrogate their positions on stuff. And I think that's a, a huge loss that we don't have the capacity to do that. That's why social dialogue is necessary going forward into the future. And we, we need a proper participative social and comprehensive social dialogue process. It's not good enough for employers and trade unions uh, to be normal government and nobody else there. I'm not, they're, they're perfectly entitled to look after the, the, the wage issues and so on. I've no, I've no interest in being in that, in that space uh, of the wages, but a lot of other issues tend to get discussed there, like social services and like infrastructure and like sustainability and like well-being and where we're going and so on. We have a lot to say in that, in the community and voluntary sector. The environmental sector has a lot to say in that. Farming sector, I'm sure, has too. None of us is actually in those spaces at this moment, and that's not a good way to be. I'm just thinking of a paper from Porrick Kenner, was it last year sometime, that the need for social housing is almost exactly to a, to a household. <laughs> the figures for 1922 are pretty much the same as either 2021 or 2022. So we haven't come that far in 100 years. Colette, I'm going to give you the last word. Yeah, I mean, you know, what he said, basically. Um, <laughs> I, I think, yes, it's absolutely well worth having. And I think we definitely should have more. You know, we had a two hour session. So each of the breakout rooms were two hours long. And that was great. But it, it actually was very, very tight. So, for example, we had four questions that I read out. That would have been half an hour each. You're shaving time off because there's the introductions bit at the beginning. There's the wrap up bit at the end. Um, so it's actually a very, very short space of time. And notwithstanding the fact that there were you know, a wide range of stakeholders in the room, there could have been more. There could have been other voices. There could have been more diverse voices that if we had a national economic dialogue on housing or a national dialogue on housing, you would have got a, a better breadth, a broader breadth of, of voices. Similarly, I'd imagine for climate change, definitely for well-being. You know, I, I would have wanted to be in that space as well, but the times they were all at the same time. And there's just there's so much that needs to be done. I mean, and again, down to that thing of like everybody in the room, everybody in the room had something to offer. So you train people, I train people. You've said it yourself, you know, the, the learnings in the room. There's a lot, you know, you can facilitate something, but really when people get together and they pull problems apart and put them back together in a different way, they're building something, they're creating something, they're taking ownership for something. And I think that is that is critical if we want to have sustainable policy uh, to allow for that to happen. So, yeah, I would absolutely, you know, mirror Sean, what Sean is saying in terms of we definitely need it. It's very, very valuable, but we need lots more of them. And if you look at Social Justice Ireland, there were seven breakout sessions yesterday. We could have, I think, very seriously contributed to every single one of them. But we had only three, we were allowed only three people at, the, at uh, the event. We went into three groups, as we've told you, but that meant four groups weren't covered. Okay, and that's, that's an issue. That's all the more reason why we need more of these 
so that people can hear and share and carry and go forward as, as Colette is, is, uh, has just been indicating. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I hope you found it useful. If you have any ideas for future podcasts, conversations that you would like us to have, please feel free to email us at secretary at socialjustice.ie with your suggestions. Until next time, stay safe.